0: You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers & Hamlin's, combining market sector thought leadership, advice and ideas, helping businesses add value and prepare for the future. Hello and welcome to another one in the Trowers & Hamlin's series of positive influencers. I'm Sarah Bailey, senior partner at Trowers & Hamlin's, and I'm delighted to welcome today John Rotter, who is the chief executive of the World Child Cancer Charity. Hi, John. How are you?
1: Hello, I'm uh, very well and delighted to be invited to be on today. Thank you.
0: Uh, Maybe we can start with you just telling us a little bit about the World world Child Cancer and the impact that your your organisation is looking to have and has had.
1: Yes, indeed. So we do sort of what it says on the tin, really, which is we support children with cancer in lower middle income countries, mainly in Africa and Asia. And what we do is to work with local doctors in the hospitals there, to support them uh, to be able to start treating children with cancer and to uh, ensure that they survive. The figures are stark. In Britain, 80 to 85% of children who get cancer now survive Mm -hmm. it. So for children, cancer has become an increasingly survivable illness. But in the countries we work in that figure is somewhere between 10% and 20% so it's very very much lower and the vast majority of the children therefore die of of their cancer and what we're doing is seeking to change that we know how we know what the drugs are the drugs are that we use are all generic drugs that have been around a long time so they're not massively expensive so it's all doable but it's a question of getting out there and getting it done Mm -hmm. So what we do is we link hospitals and doctors here with the hospitals in the countries we work in, and doctors from the NHS and nurses give their time as volunteers and will travel out and do training and capacity building and supporting the programmes, and then they do support online in between those, those visits. And as a consequence, we've been able to get the survival rate for the children in our projects that are in treatment up to about 60%. So not as high as here, but they haven't got the resources that we've got here at all, but are still a significant jump from where it was. And so that's what we're doing. We're a relatively small charity. We've been around for just over 10 years. We work in 12 countries at the moment. And childhood cancer is not a very common disease. There are about 400,000 children get cancer every year around the world. And 400,000 is a lot of children, but in the scheme of things that's quite a small percentage and so actually it is possible to get support and help to them. And that's what we aim to do. At the moment we reach about 9,000 children a year. We've set ourselves an ambition to get that to 15,000 children by 2025. And despite the pandemic, I'm still confident that we can do that. But there's a lot to do. You know, there are many more countries that would like us to work with them, but we need the resources to be able to do it. And so what we're doing, I mean, in our programmes, is apart from training and supporting doctors and nurses – We also support the families. It is a huge trauma for the whole family to have a child with cancer anywhere in the world Uh, but particularly if you've got no money at all and the treatments are not free and you've got to make really hard choices about whether you get the child treatment and what the rest of your family are going to have to surrender to do it. So we try and help those parents with Uh, financially but also emotionally, to to get through that trauma. And then we're working with frontline health workers, non-specialist ones in the countries, to get people to recognise the signs of childhood cancer so that we can get the kids into treatment sooner while it's still more treatable. And then we're trying to persuade the governments to put a bit more of their national health budget into it so that they can take over where we leave off. Uh, So that's broadly what we're aiming to do. The World Health Organisation a couple of years ago started to take an interest in childhood cancer and set a target for it, that globally by 2030, 60% of children should survive their cancer. That's an ambitious target, but it's been very helpful in galvanising governments to really start looking at this and start taking it seriously. So change is happening slowly, inch by inch. And obviously set back a bit in the last uh, 18 months by the COVID problems, but uh, that's the battle we' fight.
0: So, so looking at that, I mean, the pandemic has been challenging for, for everybody across the world, but specifically charities of, of all types have had real difficulty, I think, through the pandemic because everyone, I suppose, has had their own issues to, to worry about. So how have you reacted to those challenges, particularly in the countries that, the, that you're working in?
1: Yes, yeah, so there's two challenges. One is being able to treat people through a pandemic. And we've seen from the health service here that actually children with care, well, people with cancer, and those sorts of diseases have had to wait longer as a consequence of the focus on dealing with, with COVID, and that's been even more true in poorer countries. Uh, and, of course, then there's also the impact on our fundraising of lockdowns and so on, and we haven't been able to do the charity events that we'd planned to do. And yet, actually, our, our experiences that our donors Have stuck with us, most of them. So, although some elements of our fundraising have been affected, actually, uh, our donors have have been amazing. So, we have been able to keep going and keep going in all the countries. Last year, in the sort of first year of this, strangely, the impacts of COVID were much worse here in Europe and in America than they were in Africa or in Asia. Um, And nobody's entirely certain what the reasons for that are because uh, the expectation was that you know it would rip through poor countries, they can't do social distancing in very crowded cities and so on. And yet it didn't happen like that in year one, thankfully. This year has been a bit different as things have generally tended to get better here. Uh, in Asia in particular, there's been a surge and people have been really struggling with it. And it's, there's been lockdowns and impacts on on, uh, on children and, and who can get treated. Some signs maybe that's sort of getting a little bit better now, but uh, because the vaccination rates are so low still in those countries, they're still very precarious. And in Africa, the southern part of Africa was quite hit by the South African variant end of last year, early this year. But much of the rest of Africa, strangely, hasn't been. They've all had cases. There's been cases everywhere, but not the big surge that have closed hospitals and so on that we'd we'd feared. So in some ways, we've been able to keep going, but there have been lockdowns everywhere. And a lockdown for a child with cancer is disastrous, because if they can't get to the hospital, they're out of treatment. uh, And their cancer is getting worse while that happens. We've scrambled in places where lockdowns were announced to get accommodation for parents next to the hospital in hostels and whatever, so that they could stay near their children uh, and keep the children in treatment. And that's worked in some places. We've redirected money to provide PPE to the doctors and nurses in all of those hospitals so that they can keep working and keep safe while they're doing it. So it's been pretty challenging, but overall we've kept our programs going, and actually last year reached as many children as we did the year before, and this year we're on track to there, be there or thereabouts again. So you know, actually we've we've managed to keep the show on the road. That's fantastic. Uh, I mean, looking at you uh,
0: as a as a person, I mean your background wasn't always doing this job. Um, and so, so what what made you I suppose, decide to get involved in a charity of, of this nature um, and, and, in a sense, making a positive influence by doing it?
1: Well, so my background was in social housing, which is where we first met. Yep. And uh, I spent 30 years in social housing in the UK, uh, was chief executive of a housing association, but then decided the time had come for me to want to do something a bit different with my career rather than stay just in the one sector. Uh, so, I became a consultant and decided to try and move to other kinds of charities and to work with them. And gradually and by accident, ended up working internationally and then got approached by the recruiters when they were trying to fill this job at Wellchart Cancer. And what had already dawned on me working in the time I was recruited, I was in Nepal working there after the earthquake that actually we were doing a lot of work to help parents to have children and to safe maternity and so on. But actually the doctors were saying to me, you know, some of these parents have got cancer and they're not going to see their kids growing up and we can't, we haven't got the resources and, the, and the, 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 what we would need to be able to treat it. And so when this this job came up, I just thought actually cancer has been the big neglected illness in in developing countries, and it's time we start to change that. And to, and partly because we've been so successful with treating infectious diseases, uh, COVID apart, but, but in general, you know, the numbers dying from malaria and HIV and all of those big infectious diseases have been dropping quite dramatically. It's been a big success for the international health programs. But that makes it then time to deal with the non-infectious diseases that were being ignored. So that's what brought me to this.
0: And, and looking at sort of um, I mean, the, the job that you're doing and the job that you did before in Nepal and places like that, I mean, it, it's, it's challenging in many, many ways, both emotionally as well as mentally, I, th- I think. And, and I, I can't underestimate what you do and how you do it. What do you think the, the qualities or attributes are, are needed in a sense to help implement change? There's lots of people in the world who maybe want to or try to, but actually I think it, it sometimes it's certain attributes that really you need in order to try and get the change to happen.
1: Well, the first thing I think is to have a good team around you. And one of the things about this is it is pretty harrowing this this at times, but you're working with health professionals who are so determined and so committed and so ready to deal with all the setbacks and celebrate every success that it's kind of infectious, really. It sort of carries you along. And I think that's part of, you know, when you're dealing with change, the, the first thing is to be quite determined about what you need to do and have a real strategy about why it's the right thing to do. And then to, to listen and involve and get the team around you behind it. And it is a sort of a bit of determination and a bit of just do it. But mixed with then a willingness to listen and to carry people along and to change if things don 't work right so I, I mean I quite enjoy change as a process I, I find it very invigorating. Yeah. I think a lot of people do actually it 's just the sort of approaching it the right way
0: so what, what in, in in your sort of um, your life both both career and personal life what 's the best bit of advice that anyone 's ever given you that's really stuck with
1: you well, my My ex-wife used to say, if you really want to do something, go for it and really, really put your back into it. But if having tried it and done your best at it, it doesn't work, then decide to want something different or you'll have an unhappy life. And I think I've always liked that mix of both determination, but also pragmatism. And it's the kind of philosophy that isn't going to win you an Olympic medal where you absolutely need to just go regardless. But it's a way of living a life that actually works, really, and that can kind of carry people around you as well uh, as you do it. So I've always kind of rather liked that piece of advice.
0: I like that. (laughs) That's a very very good bit of advice. So, I mean, just looking at you and I I know each other well, and and certainly in my life, there's been challenges I've had to overcome or challenges that I've had to deal with that's helped define me and my outlook, I think, on on life and philosophy about about life. What would you say are the key events that helped you define your outlook and, and, and
1: who you are? Well, I grew up in India and was very aware that I was... Uh, growing up in a family that was that was fairly well off and comfortable and safe in a world around me where people really weren't. There was enormous poverty um, and hunger and so on. And And so I think I, ever since I was a child, have always known how lucky I am to have had the chances and the opportunities that I've had. And what comes from that then is a feeling that you have a kind of duty to put something back uh, as well as just to feel lucky and enjoy it too, Mm. you know, and that's, so that's sort of been my approach to life and and I think that's where it comes from.
0: And do you think experiencing so? you obviously experience lots of different cultures as well and you've been Mm. around the world and and, and you embrace that that sort of the the differences. Do you think that's helped mould as well in your outlook and the way that you deal with different situations?
1: Yes, I think, I mean, A, I love listening to people and meeting people from different places with different backgrounds and just how interestingly different that is, but also how very similar a lot of things are too. You know, the concerns that people have are all the same for for their family and, and so forth. So that's really interesting. I think having travelled a lot gives you a kind of slightly different perspective than people who just live in Britain and who get very sort of tied up in the issues of Britain, whereas actually there's a whole world out there and we sometimes tend to miss that a bit, I think.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And I think I think understanding different cultures also is, I find that fascinating, the, the different cultures, the way people come at, about things, maybe with the end result be the same, but in different ways and, and that we need to embrace all of that to really understand what's around us. So, so we're asking um, in this series, we're asking everyone the same question, which is what would one thing would you like to possibly influence over the next year or the next five years? Now, I think I know you, what your answer is going to be to this. But if it was just one thing, what would you want to positively
1: influence? Firstly, I'm going to be cheeky and say I want two, please. So, <laughs> okay. for the, so one for the first year, what I would really like to do is to get everybody or everybody vulnerable on this planet, a COVID injection. I think we have hugely missed the point and the G7 Mm -hmm. flunked it when they didn't set out to get the vaccines to all the countries in the world fast enough. And I think apart from the fairness and the rightness of doing it, there's also a self-interest. You know, the saying that nobody's safe until everybody's safe is true in a pandemic. And if we leave a huge well of this in Africa or wherever, then there will be new variants, and in the end, those will come back and bite us. So we should just get on and do it, and that would make everybody a lot safer. For children, the evidence is that although, as we've all seen, the children are relatively immune to the, the worst effects of COVID anyway, and that's uh, we'd be very fortunate in that, but that's not so true for children with cancer. And the numbers getting very serious COVID are very much higher in that group with their immune systems affected by chemotherapy and so on. So so getting a grip on COVID is really, really important. So that's my number one. And then number two is kind of what you'd expect me to say, really. Within five years, I would like every child who gets cancer to get treatment for their cancer and to have the chance of growing up and getting through it. And again, I think the world could achieve that. It's not, it's not impossible. We know how the costs are not so enormous that it couldn't be done. We need to get on and do it. And that's what I'd really, really like to see happen.
0: I think what's, what I've certainly learned by, by working with the charity is actually the cost isn't that great. And actually, there shouldn't be a reason why we can't do it. And that's, I suppose, the biggest frustration that if some of these countries were and some of the bigger countries and the wealthier countries were prepared to put a bit more money in, we could actually uh, do a lot more, which, which is so important. Thank you, John. That was fantastic. I always want to put one big plug for the charity. It's an amazing charity. Please, 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 people who are listening in, please do actually help the charity because it's very easy to, to sometimes help what's on your doorstep and much harder actually to think about those who actually aren't. Um, and it's really, really important that we do. So thank you very much. Well, thank
1: you indeed. It's great to have the opportunity to talk to you, always, obviously, and to talk to all of your listeners too. So thank you.
0: You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at Trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.